We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at this text here that Charles read to you in Mark in chapter 3 and verse uh, 7 and following. When I was at Dallas Seminary, I had a, my first class was, uh, show you how long ago that was, the, uh, it was $39 a semester hour. And so with a few 20s, I could pay for the class and not anymore. Now they have a, a certain amount and they want your firstborn child. Okay, you have to give them that. But I had a class in Christology with Dr. Robert Leitner. And it was a, I, was, I was the perfect seminary student. I was famished for whatever I could learn. I'd come early and sit late and take the, the, the teachers to professors to lunch and quiz them and just get into their brains. But Dr. Leitner was teaching us Christology, the life of Christ. And he came to the particular text that we're going to look at today in the life of Christ, this particular idea. And he said, uh, this, is the, this is the pivot of his ministry. He said, this is the watershed of his life, is what I'm going to show you. In Matthew, it's chapter uh, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12. Mark just brings it down into a few verses. But he said that you can tell how much a Christian knows and understands the gospel by his understanding of these chapters. And what he, I said, huh, and then I realized he was dead on right in what he said. And so y'all listen close, and let me just inform y'all for a, a, a far less than... $39 a semester hour, okay? And I'll show you something here that you don't know. In verse 7, after verse 6, where the Pharisees and the Herodians have to figure out how they're going to kill him. Are you with me? They're going to kill him. And so the die is cast. You're going to die. And so in verse 7, Jesus What's your second word there? You got withdrew? This is a period that is called the withdrawals of Christ, that he will no longer go to the Jewish leadership. He's going to withdraw from them and go to the common man, and then he's going to go to the Gentile. We're going to move away from Israel to what is going to be the phenomena of the church, the mystery of the gospel. And so... In verse 8, you watch him now go out. In verse 7 and 8, he withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea. That's the land of Edom across the Jordan. And from beyond the Jordan, in the, in the uh, land of the Gentiles, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon among the Phoenicians. And a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So great are they that in verse 9, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready. Have y'all ever seen, you see a lot of times uh, uh, paintings and renderings of this where the crowd is so great that Jesus can't teach him. He's got to get off the shore in a boat. You've seen those paintings? And so he is crowded out. And it's because of the crowd that they would not crowd him. Now, 
question is, why is there? And Mark just lets you see there is this enormous response. Not We never see Pharisees come to faith. We never see priests come to faith. We never see Herodians. We never see Sadducees. We never see lawyers. Let me, let me explain that. <laughs> Old Testament scribes, okay. We never see them. Because Christ was offensive to them. Uh, he was calling them uh, to repent, and they didn't like that. But among common men, his ministry is explosive. Now, why was this like that? Because he is Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. God has come among us. Uh, and in verse 10, he's proving it. He's healing many. We've seen a paralytic. We've seen a leper. We've seen uh, a man with a withered hand. We've seen demons cast out at his word. Uh, and those who had afflictions pressed around just to touch him, and they are healed. The unclean spirits would see him and fall and cry out, you are the son of God. And so you ever sing that hymn, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Well, that is what happened here. People are realizing heaven has come down. Uh, man has always had shamans, sorcerers, diviners, oracles, witch doctors, medicine men, astrologers, palm readers, uh, people with Ouija boards, seances, to, to always have some way to make contact with the world that is above us where we have an epistemological morass. Y'all have any idea what I just said? Epistemology is the science of knowing how you know and man can study things down here with math and material and telescopes and what he can see and touch. But as far as the meaning of things, right and wrong, God, the soul, evil, redemption, those are things you pontificate over at, at Boy Scout campfires and you don't know because we have an epistemological problem of how I can know the mind of God, how I can get outside of myself. And man is not content merely with empiricism, rationalism, what he can think about and touch. He's got to know, where did I come from? Who am I? We are orphans in the dark. You dig? That's what man is without God. He is an orphan in the dark. And that's why in every culture, you see man reaching to witch doctors or something. Will somebody out there please tell me where this came from and who I am and why I feel that people should do me just? And what is justice and where does it come from? And why is it just and why do I want... That's Now you're into what's called the queen of sciences, philosophy, trying to figure it out. You know, listen to this. It goes like this. It says, uh, the nations, those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. A diviner is where you're trying to figure out through physical means 
what the will of the beyond. All right, it's practiced in West Virginia, Kentucky, out in there. Okay. And so they listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. So he says these nations are very theologically rooted in mysticism and trying to figure it out. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So God says to Israel, I don't want to see you at the tarot card readers. I don't want to see you at the, uh, over at the tea leaves. I don't want to see you at the palm readers. You stay out of there. That's not how you're going to figure out who I am. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. I'm going to inspire and reveal myself through people. And someday there's going to be a prophet like me, like Moses. Moses took his stance between God and the people. He offered sacrifice for the people, and he told the people who God was. And God said, I'm going to raise up someday one singular guy just like you, and he's going to be the mediator between God and men. As a matter of fact, we're going to call him the Word of God. We're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. And now you're not going to have to go to tea leaves. You're just going to look and see who he is. And he says, you shall listen to him. Does that remind you of a text? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Beloved son, he's God. Well pleased. He's a man, God and man. And then God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God's quoting here from his own text. And so that is how God has ordained that a human gets out of being a cosmic orphan. It's when God anoints and appoints and prophesies and validates one singular individual. We're going to call him the Messiah, the anointed one. Or in Greek, we're going to call him the Christ. His name happens to be Jesus. You with me? And so everybody packed it out to want to know who this guy is, because that's what we all want to know. Uh, but in verse 12, the demonic are not going to have the responsibility. The erroneous and the enemies, I will not entrust them to tell you who I am. I will shut them up. They're not going to tell you. All right? In verse 13. Here is how the world is going to know me. He went up on a mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. How did God announce his law on a mountain? It was called Sinai with a fellow named Moses. And God said, I'm going to raise up a guy just like him. And here we are once again at a mountain. And he summons those who he wants. And in verse 12, he appointed 12. They didn't volunteer. He appointed them. They didn't compete for the job. He said, I want those. Matter of fact, the longest he ever spends in prayer, it says in another gospel, is the whole night in prayer to get these men. And so he appointed 12 that they would be with him and he would send them out to preach. Why 12? How many tribes are there in Israel? 12. We now have 12 apostles. They're going to go to the Jew first. And they're also going to go to the non-Jew, the Greek. 
They are going to be a new people of God. 12 in the number often is the word of administration. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 144,000 Jews, uh, 24 orders of the Jewish priesthood. And so it's the number of administration. Whenever Israel will renounce the Savior, God will have somebody to step in their place, and that's going to be the church. I want you to, the way that Mark and all the Gospels depict Christ is he's never defeated and he's never taken by surprise. He's always two steps ahead of everybody. They used to always say it, the reason that Stonewall Jackson never lost a battle is that he was a math professor at Virginia Military. And he was always sequential in his thinking. And so when he would go into battle, he would say, we're going to do this and they will do that and I will come back to here. And then they will do that and I will do this. And so he was always, it was like he was omniscient. He was always ahead of you. That's who Christ is. Uh, he's never taken by surprise. And so he is getting ready right now, the guys who are gonna take over in what is called the age of the church. He's a step ahead of everybody. And so what we're gonna do with them is two things. They will be with him. They're going to relearn their Bibles from Christ. Would you agree that before you go out to preach, you better know what to preach about? And so he takes them and he educates them. In the book of Matthew, it's Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then he sends them out in chapter 10. And so for months and months, these people are 24-7 with this man, and he is educating them. He is reforming them. This is a reformation. This is a, a new life. The Greek word for that is a renaissance. This is a renaissance man. It's a reformation movement. I'm going to bring you fellows back to what the Bible really says. You have been victimized by these guys that made you like sheep without a shepherd. But I'm going to tell you the real deal as to who God is. And so he educates them. As a matter of fact, later on, it'll say in the book of Acts, and when they listened to the wisdom of Peter and John, they were amazed because they were uneducated and untaught men. And they recognized them as having been with Jesus. That's why they're so sharp. And so, as a matter of fact, he's gonna say, go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all I commanded you. That's your text, is what I taught you. And so he's going to teach these men, and then he will, in verse 14, send them out to preach. That text that you read that's really, Matthew spends a long time on that, he will send them out to preach. John the Baptist came saying, repent the kingdom of heaven is hand. Jesus came saying, repent the kingdom of heaven is hand. Now he's going to send out these 12, the 12 tribes, repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, in Matthew 10, you see this big, long narrative on uh, don't take a garment, don't take a, 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 a something else, don't take all this stuff. The laborer is worthy of his wage. I'm sending you out like Levites, like priests. You're going to find the good guys. When you go into a house, don't think you have to move around. You stay there. When they, sh when they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet. Move on. And blessing is going to come if they do. Cursing will come if they don't. You are now like prophets. Your sons are the prophets. So he goes into this big, long Matthew 10 narrative 
Romans is kind of like uh, cliff notes. You have any idea what I'm talking about? I know you'd. Okay. And so he appoints these men, and their, their message is going to be fourfold. The king has come. Secondly, this is what he has taught, and he's going to call them back to Reformation ideas. During the Protestant Reformation, Luther's ideas went in France and Paris to a guy named Calvin. Uh, Calvin went to a place called Geneva, Switzerland, and began a city. Basically, it was a Reformation city. And guys would come to him and study with him. He had a rule. You could only stay there for two years, and then you had to go back home. And guys like John Knox came to him, English reformers come to him, and Calvin used his place to bring men back to the Bible that had been lost to them for a thousand years. Um, I'll go on. So the king has come, here's what he teaches, and then he called them to make a decision. Repent and believe the gospel the good news that Christ has come. He's calling the nation to follow after this final Moses, the Messiah. And in verse 15, he's going to have something to prove it. They will do great miracles. He bestows upon them the ability to cast out demons and to heal. Back up with me just a second. If you were Spock, are you with me? You're a pure rational Vulcan and you're reading your Bible. You stop and you say, Captain, something happened right here. Okay. Leonard Nimoy. I've told y'all before what that means, don't you? Leonard Nimoy was Jewish. And whenever the uh, rabbis would dismiss them, that was their blessing because that is the symbol of the Hebrew letter uh, that is the initial letter in the word El Shaddai. All right? And so that is what they would do. And Leonard just thought, hey, that looks good. And so he did it. Aren't you glad what you learn in this church? All right. It's not Mork and Mindy. No, it's Hebrew. Okay. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. And so if he was reading his Bible, he would stop and go, Captain, something's happening here. There's only three times you see supernatural events accompanying men, and that is to certify a message. We see Moses and Joshua do it because they are certifying the law. And then when Israel rejects it and begins to fall into judgment, God sends Elijah and Elisha, not writing prophets, not yet. They're just demonstrable prophets. And they do miracles because the law is being called back to by the prophets. And so it certifies the divine message. Well, they blew that off and ended up in captivity. And now you see Jesus and the 12. And they are once again, miracles are certifying and making empirical before men. These are the men of God. But nobody does miracles like Christ. And so these people do miracles. And we named them in 16 through 19. Matthew names them. Mark names them. Luke names them. John elaborates on them. But this is a very important list. You know why? Because these are the authority. When you leave your house, 
and you want to make sure it stays safe and sound, you get the most reliable people you know, and you put something into their hands. What do you put into their hands? Keys. You can close it, and you can open it according to my wishes. You reflect them. Did Jesus use that term with the apostles? Yes, he did. I will give unto you, Peter is the leader and all the rest under him, the keys of the kingdom. I'm making you the final authorities. He says in the gospel of John, whosoever sins you forgive, they shall have been forgiven. Whosoever that you retain, they shall have been retained. You guys are going to be the final word and the foundation of the church as to what is true. And when I inspire my word and give a completion of the Bible, it's going to come through you guys. I have many things to teach you right now, and you can't bear them, John. But the Holy Spirit will guide you. Not David Koresh, not Joe Smith. He will guide you into how much of the truth? All the truth. And that's why when they canonize the New Testament, the first thing you ask is, who wrote it? Paul. And who is Paul? The guy that Jesus appealed to, appeared to, and that's who wrote it. Who else? Peter, John, James. Whoa, which James? See, they were very critical, and that's why the book of Hebrews and the book of James took a little while to get into the canon. It was because the authorship, we weren't sure who wrote it. So it has to be an apostle or somebody that is delegated by apostle, like Mark, delegated by Peter, like Luke, delegated by Paul. Are you with me? And so these lists are very important. It's called apostolic succession. What do the big boys say? So is your church apostolic? Question, does it fall in line with the New Testament? I don't care how mystical it is or how far back it can claim to have teachers that go that back. Do they stay faithful to the revealed New Testament of the apostles? And so these guys are eyewitnesses. Let me stop just a second. The authority of the Bible is that of eyewitnesses. We don't, the, the authority of the law of God isn't that Moses was just so smart and sat down and figured it out. It's not that Elijah was so smart he figured it out, or Samuel figured it out. It's not that uh, Peter was so sharp that he sat down and philosophized and rationalized his way to truth. It's not that Paul was sitting under the Bodai tree and got Budad. It's the term that means enlightened. No, it may not be enlightenment. It may be just be pizza, all right, that you were having a movement in your soul there. And so the people that God entrusts his word to are not thinkers. They're not philosophers. They are people that God tells them what the truth is, and they vindicate it with miracles. Ye shall be my witnesses. I'm going to show you who I am, and you're going to tell people about me. You don't have to be brilliant. Your accumulative IQ is like a 3-7, okay? But I'm going to show you because the Bible, biblical redemption, New Testament salvation, 
does not rest upon a philosophic idea. It rests upon the intervention and history of God Almighty. You dig? That's, that's why if you go take a course on comparative religion, that's what the teacher has to communicate in the first session. All these other religions are what guys thought when they came out of the woods and had enlightenment. Judaism and Christianity, that all emit from the same book. These are religions about the intervention of God in history. Yea, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You can't separate Judaism and Christianity from the reality of life. It is inextricably bound up with reality. And so if God tells you that Paul was on the way to Damascus, we'd better find a Damascus. If he said it was in a street called Straight, we better have a street called Straight. If it was in the house of a guy named Judas, we better find the house of Judas. We believed for years that there was a Nineveh, though we didn't know where it was until 1845. A guy named Burkhart found it. There it is. We didn't know that there was a, uh, a place in Edom until we found that in the 1800s, a place called Petra. And so if you'll wait long enough, God will show you. So are you with me? And so that's why these 12 are so important because Christianity is not based upon philosophy. It is based upon what God did and humans watch it. Paul said, I preach to you as in first importance what I received, that Jesus Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, to James, to the apostles, and more than 500, some are who are alive at this time. Go ask them. And last of all, he appeared as to one born out of time, one that was a miscarriage, just popped on the scene. He appeared to me. See what Paul's saying? This stuff I'm telling you is scriptural and it's historical. You can see it. Let me beat this horse a little more dead, okay? Look at 1 John, would you? 1 John chapter 1. First John is written late as Revelation, late in the first century. And there were guys that were called Gnostics. They were having revelations, supposedly. They had a higher gnosis a higher knowledge that no one else had. It was pepperoni, but they claimed that it was a higher knowledge, okay? And in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, John is showing the difference between Christianity and pagan thought. And he says, what was from the beginning? This is an eternal person. What we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He is God. He is a word spoken. And we saw him. We, meaning the apostolic company, we saw him. In verse 2, the life was manifested. This was not just a divine person. This was a human person. And we saw him. And he was just called the life. He is the essence of what a man should have been. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you 
the eternal life, which was with the Father, that he cohabited with the Father from eternity and was manifested to us. He became one of us. What we have seen and heard, an English teacher would count off right here. You're redundant, son. How many times are you going to say this? And John would have said, they got people out there like, like Skip and Doug. <laughs> they need it repeated. I understand. Go ahead. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. You with me? From God to the apostles to Doug. I just threw that in there. <laughs> All right. I'm from God to the apostles to us. And I want you to have fellowship with us. That just as those men had intimacy with God, you guys can have the same kind of intimacy. Isn't that great? The same. How many times in the Bible do you see a human being called a saint? Never. Not one time. You see peoples called saints. You never see one guy. Because God doesn't want you thinking that there's a higher order. We're all chillings. All of us. Matter of fact, do you know what group is called saints more than any other group in the New Testament? The Corinthians that got drunk at communion. That's a problem, all right? That's not a command. That is a problem. Okay. And our fellowship, what kind of pronoun is that? Our, all of us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. As soon as you trust Christ, you are in companionship with God. Wow. So go back here to the Gospel of Mark. And so let's continue in verse 20. And he came home after this preaching tour. It is called the second preaching tour. He now comes home. He has gone out, and we don't know how long it lasted, but he went out into all the nation of Israel. And he proclaimed to them the gospel. This is probably where John, the apostle, made the statement. These things that he did, I've written to you that you might believe that he is the son of God. Many other things he also did. And if I took time to write them, you don't have time to read them. He said, if I told you everything he did, uh, it, they would fill the libraries. And so I'm giving you very select things that you might believe that he is the son of God and by believing have life in his name, John 20. And so in verse uh, 20, he came home and the crowd gathered again. He comes back to Capernaum into the house of Peter's mother-in-law. Ladies, whenever you invite Christ into your life, can he take over? A house is sacred to a woman. That's why the Greek word for housewife in the Bible is the word oikodespotes. Oiko means the house. Despot means the wife. I'll move on to such an extent. So God may take over what you give to him, and he doesn't really ask your permission. He does what he wants to with your life. And so in verse 21, after this great preaching tour, now let me stop just a second. Are we all on the same page? This man and his men are doing things that only God can do. And that's why everybody is showing up, because God has made himself known. 
and he can actually forgive you. He can give you new life. And so they will climb up in trees to see him. They will crawl in behind the crowns to touch him. They will throw themselves in front of him and say, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on my daughter. Blind Bartimaeus will get up screaming after him in his blindness. Messiah, have mercy on us. And so the gospels never give you the idea that this fellow's ministry is this guy that just comes out of the woods with ideas that becomes very popular. He goes zero to 60. From John the Baptist to a heavenly annunciation, the dove lights on him and he explodes on planet earth. Well, in verse 21 and following, John, I'm sorry, Mark wants you to know there are three responses to this man. Remember I told you last week, the responses are mad, bad, and glad? Well, that's what they are. You're not allowed to say this is a good man. You can't say that. He forces you to a radical decision on him. His own people are his own kinsmen. We know from John 7 that Jesus had uh, uh, at least four brothers and at least two sisters that became Christians. And in John or in Acts 1, they're there at Pentecost. They got converted. But in John 7, it said not even his own family was believing in him. Because it's a difficult thing. To, to grow up with a perfect brother. I wish my brother Bob was here. He could amen that. I bet what it was like. But his own people didn't believe in him. You know why? And this is very important. Whenever people try to portray Jesus in the, in the movies and whatever, they'll try to look at him like he's a kind of a spiritual prodigy. And he was just brilliant coming up and he had this leaning toward God. That's what all the liberals say that he was really just a great man, that we convoluted into a deity, but he was really just a person highly sensitive to God. He was a kind of a Gandhi type, all right, just very sensitive. And the Gospels let you know that all of a sudden, God says, now. And he's just like one of us. If you had hung out with him, he was like, like his brethren in all things, but from sin apart. He was loving, he was good, he was perfect but he didn't do any miracles. At the water, turning of water into wine, it says this beginning of his miracles Jesus did. So no one knew who he was. And so he goes, he comes out of hiding and God says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so the first response was they said in verse 21, they came to take custody of him, an intervention because they said he has lost his senses Literally, the Greek says, he is mad. And it's the Greek word that means he's beside himself or he is out of his mind. It was used with the apostle Paul by Agrippa. Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. Paul uses it of himself. If we're, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. People think we're nuts. And so the first response is, you're crazy. You are out of your mind with what you are saying. Uh, the next response is in verse 22. From mad to bad, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying, 
He's possessed by Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebul was what the Canaanites called the king of the Canaanite demons. The Jews changed it from the master, Beelzebub, Beelzebul to Beelzebub. That meant the Lord of the flies. And so Beelzebub came to be within Israel a term for all that was evil and opposed God. It became, yea, a synonym for the name Satan. And so they say in 22, this is where he gets his power from, is from the devil. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. First he is mad and now he is bad. Karl Marx, what did he say that Christianity was? The opiate of the people, meaning it makes them easy to handle. That governments use Christianity to cower the people into submission to make them easier to handle. Okay. Uh, how does our culture see us? Yeah, you guys are holding us back. We need to be progressive, not conserving the old ideas. Y'all are bad for the country. And so from mad to bad, verse 23, put down the word glad. People see him as crazy. People see him as evil. Or people see him as the most marvelous thing that has ever come. But there's no room for not making a decision. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. You got to make the call. You remember in the book of a Judges where Gideon defeats the Midianites and he's pursuing the enemy across the Jordan and he comes to a city that is called Penuel and a city called Sukkoth. And he says, my men are weary. Could you Jewish brothers give us something to eat? And they said, are the heads of these kings in your hands already? You hadn't won this game. And if I help you, you might lose and they'll come back and they'll judge me. No, I'm gonna let y'all just suck it up. We're not gonna help you. We're not gonna make a commitment. And Gideon said, I love the way it says in the Hebrew. He says, all right. It's all right. When I come back, and I will, with the heads of these kings, I'm going to discipline you with the thorns of the wilderness, meaning I'm going to tie you up behind our horses and drag you. And he comes back and destroyed him. He that is not with me is against me. I'm going to treat you as the enemy. Okay? So you got to make the call on Christ. You don't get to simply be in... Uh, Sit on the fence. Sorry. And so Jesus began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. If a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand. Who was the president that quoted this to the entire nation? That verse, remember? It was Abraham Lincoln. A house divided cannot stand. We can't teeter on abolition or slavery anymore. We can't have any more Missouri compromises and bloody Kansases. We got to make the call. And as soon as he got elected, the South seceded. And so he said, you got to be with us or against us. And so in verse 25, 
If a house is divided, that house can't stand. And in the same way, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. He is finished. So no, I am not doing this by Satan. I am doing great good. What I'm doing is verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house. Who is the strong man that holds man in captivity? It is Satan. Who is the one stronger that enters into his domain? It is Jesus. He's depicting here the gospel message. He says, let me give you the proper casting. I'm not working with Satan. He and I are mortal enemies. This world is the strong man's house. The whole world, John says, lies in the power of the evil one. The first Christmas is Normandy. I'm landing here and I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna plunder his possessions. Question, who are the possessions that he's gonna free? It's you and it's me. You are held captive by the devil and I'm about to free you. Amen. Whoa. And so I am Satan's worst enemy. That's why when Jesus is born, Herod is there, inspired by the devil, wants him dead right there. And so he first binds the strong man. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And then he will go through and plunder his house. I'm going to take out the elect of God. Those whom he predestined, these he called, and he called, he justified, and he justified, he glorified. I'm going to take them out. And so, mad, bad, and glad. How do you plunder Satan's uh, people? You do it first by justifying them and removing them from the kingdom of God or from the kingdom of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. And then you enlighten them and open their minds to understand the Bible. And then you give them a new heart and the ability to obey. That's how you do it. And that's what he did to us. And so in verse 28, what he did in verse 23 through 27 is he prophesied the coming age. It's called the age of the church, where he comes not just to Israel, but to Satan's house, the whole world. And so he prophesies the coming age. He's always one step ahead of the opposition. But he says in verse 28, something is going to happen to Israel because of what they've done. Your leaders have looked at me. They have seen me line up with scripture. They have seen my genealogy. They have seen my miracles. They have heard my words. They have seen my power. And their only excuse is that I do these things by the power of the devil. In the Old Testament, is there a sacrifice for blasphemy? There is not. When you blaspheme, you die. Israel just did a national sin. They blasphemed the Son of God, and they attributed the spirit of God's works to the devil. And Jesus said, time out. You just crossed a line. In verse 28, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, but whoever blasphemes, but whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark qualifies that this is not an individual thing. It was a national sin. That's why this text is not repeated anywhere else in the New Testament. Because as soon as you start saying an unforgivable sin, I know what y'all are doing. Y'all going back on your Rolodex and wondering if you did it. Now, this is never mentioned anywhere else. It's only in the context of a national sin that Israel's leaders commit against Christ. And as a result, the whole nation is about to be executed. No longer will he reach out to Israel. It's done. You went too far. Uh, Paul says this, until this time, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul said, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus said, the kingdom is taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit thereof. Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. I'm about to tear it down and I'm going to haul you off into captivity. And you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's going to be deportation. There's going to be desolation. There's going to be destruction. And there's going to be darkness. And I'm leaving. You remember whenever he came, he cleared the temple. He did not find repentance when he, come, when he does his return to Jerusalem here in a few chapters. And uh, he walked outside and he did something that was emblematic. The, the figure of Israel in the Bible is a fig tree. And he found no fruit on that fig tree, nothing but leaves, a lot of show. And he did something. He cursed it from the ground up, and he said, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. There's a point you go to that, like the book of Chronicles said, until there was no remedy. And so, uh, who now will be his people? Look around. We don't have that many Jews in here. In the first century, you start out, it's all Jews. It's no Gentiles. And slowly and surely, by the end of the book of Acts, the nation of Israel has renounced not just Christ, but they renounced Peter and Paul, wanted him gone. And so now when you look at the church, it's predominantly Gentiles, all right? Well, is it completely Gentiles? No. Paul said a partial hardening has happened to Israel. There are Jews, but until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that's who we are. And so who will now if Israel is now set aside, who will become his people? Twofold. Watch this. In verse 31, his mother and his brothers arrived, his physical family, and standing outside. Why didn't they come in and sit? Because they didn't believe. They sent word to him and called him. The thought was, your physical family takes precedence over your spiritual family. And so you need to leave them and come out here with us. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. These are, are Jewish Christians that don't represent the Jewish leadership. They're what is called the, the Anharets, the people of the land. And so in 32, 
They said, behold, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus answered and said, who's my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? He said, it's not those guys. 34, looking around at those that were sitting around him. You see that? His family, this is a hermeneutical landmark. You can't miss it. The family in verse 31, what is their location? Standing outside. In verse 34, what, where are the disciples? Sitting inside. Who is my family? It's those that are sitting at my feet. Those that are physically Jews and physically family, they are outside. And so the house of God is going to be comprised of, watch this, Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, the woman with the issue of blood, uh, Matthew and the IRS guys. All right. The wicked woman that wets his feet uh, with her tears. We don't know who she is. We're going to take all the Hanyaks, all the lowly of Israel. They're going to be my people. And then in verse 35, he introduces a word. It's prophetic. 35. They're my brothers and my sisters, my mother, because, what's the next word? Whoever. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe should not perish but have eternal life. What he's about to do in the future that's going to become his house that we're going to take out from Satan's house are going to be the lowly of Israel and then we're going to go to it in chapter 4. He's going to tell the parables of the Gentiles, the church. What comprises the church? The Jew, Indians, yes. Indians, Aggies. Guys from the University of Texas, both of them. God takes the lowly to be his people. And so it's going to be the lowly of Israel and the Gentiles. If we went around and did a demographic of who is in this church, it's identical to what Jesus said. It's going to be those of Israel that have believed in him and were counted as dead among their people. And then those of the Gentiles that heard something that they had never heard. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 4. Now, do you understand why Dr. Robert Leitner said to us, if you understand the withdrawal period, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, turning to the lowly of Israel and then to the Gentiles, this is the pivot in the ministry of Christ. In other words, who are we? We are right where God meant us to be. Is this a good message for the day that we are in? Is anybody at the stick up there? God says, I am in total, complete control. I've got it. I, can you imagine when the Romans read this the first time? 
and saw this with untainted eyes. Who are the people of God? They would have all been around it and saying, winny, witty, wiki. I guess that's what Latin people do. All right. They just said, would you look? He came to his people and they reject him. He now takes the lowly. Being a physical Jew doesn't make you his people. And even the Gentiles, that's us. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even of those who believe in his name, who were born not of bloods, nor of the will of a husband, nor the will of the flesh, not just you're physically Jews, but are born of God whosoever. Amen. Isn't it great to be sitting in the middle of the divine vortex of what he is doing? Father in heaven, we bless you for this, that you wrote to the Jews in four chapters. You wrote to the Romans in a few verses. And that's what Mark is. It is congealed. It is synthesized. It is uh, biblical cliff notes. It's baby talk. And we see little pearls that Mark is stringing together as to who he is and what happened to him and who we are and where we are in history. Find us, God, faithful. And if there's anybody in here that maybe thinks that uh, Jesus was just a crazy guy, some that think that uh, he is just a bad guy, some that realize now he's the best of guys, he's the redeemer. This is the ultimate John Wayne. This is the ultimate Luke Skywalker. This is the ultimate hero that lays aside his glory and drops down into the, into the enemy's territory to extricate us from it, to extract us and take us home. Thank you. In Jesus' name.